Are we ready to get in the Word this morning for a few moments? Praise God. Praise God. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to, to open them with me to the very first book. None of us should have a hard time finding Genesis. In just a moment, I'm going to start with chapter 12. I'm going to tell you a story here today, several stories in fact, but, but as we begin a brand new series, we're entitling it Portrait. Now's the time of year where a lot of folks are getting their pictures taken and I've already received a couple of overachievers Christmas cards with their family's photo on it. <laughs> Anybody besides me ever put those in the mail too late or made a last minute edit so that it said Merry Christmas and Happy New Year because you knew it wasn't going to get there before the 25th of December? <laughs> well, the Bible is full of portraits and I want to talk to you today about pictures that are being painted in God's word. You know, the Christmas carol asked the question, do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? And as we look at the canvas of the Old Testament today, I want to ask the same question. Do you see what I see? Because God is painting a picture for us. And before I join you in Genesis chapter 12, I want you to see a verse in John 1. Verse 14 on the screen, because this is going to set the stage for where we're headed. Look at it with me. It says the word. How many of you know that's Jesus? He is the living word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. In the flesh. Stay with me. If Jesus is the word. In the flesh. Then I believe. That the word. In the letter. Is a picture. Of Jesus. Jesus is the word. Become flesh. And so if we'll look into. The portrait of God's word. We'll see Jesus. In the letters. And my hope for this season is simply this, that you see Christ. I want you to see him today in these next few moments. And I want us to look at an Old Testament portrait in Genesis chapter 12. It's a portrait of Isaac. Beginning in verse 1 and 2, here's what it says, Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now, this is an incredible promise that God gave to Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. But as you fast forward through his story, you find that by Genesis 15... Abraham is very frustrated. And the reason he's frustrated is because he and his wife, Sarah, cannot conceive. He doesn't have any children. He doesn't have one son to his name, much less is he the father of a great nation. And so he is frustrated. And Abraham begins to do something that I think all of us are prone to do. He begins to doubt the promise of God. 
And when he doubts the promise of God, he thinks, surely God is not lying to me. So what he tries to do to make sense of his circumstance with his God is he tries to reinterpret the promise of God in his own life. Maybe what I heard is not what God meant. And so he begins to rationalize his circumstance. And Abraham assumes that since he and Sarah can't have children, his estate is going to go to his servant, Eliezer. Can I just tell you this morning, that's what Satan wants to do to us. He wants us to reinterpret the promises of God. God has said something in his word and you try to stand on it and believe it. And you come into a church like this and we start singing, our God is greater, our God is stronger. And you go, man, I believe that. And then three days into this week, Circumstances haven't changed. And you start thinking, well, maybe, maybe God meant something else when he put that promise in my heart. It's like, it's like a person that makes a declaration that Jesus can open blind eyes. We believe that. We see it in scripture. Jesus said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe he can open blind eyes. But then we pray for somebody who can't see. And God doesn't heal him. And so we, we try to reinterpret the promise. Well, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to give you spiritual insight. Right? We want to reinterpret the promise. Listen, God has made his word clear. And Abraham does the same thing that we try to do. He tries to rationalize that maybe God meant something different. But flip over a couple pages with me to Genesis 15. I want you to see what it says In verse 4, because God doesn't need to explain away his promises. He just wants us to simply believe him. He just wants us to believe him. And that's exactly what Abraham does when God doubles down on what he originally meant when he made a promise that you'll be the father of many nations. Look at verse 4, Genesis 15. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Speaking of Eliezer, his servant. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now look down at verse 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. That right there is a verse worth underlining two times in your Bible. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as Righteousness. Now, can I tell you what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that Abram was righteous. No, it says he believed the Lord. And because he put faith in God, God put righteousness in his account. He credited it to him as righteous. Can I tell you this morning, all you need to do is believe the Lord. That's all, that's all you need to do. You need to just simply hear the word of God, hear what he's saying, and respond. If God's word is true, and I know that it is, if God's word is true today, think about how different your story could be if you would simply fill your name in in place of Abraham's name. If it said, Aaron believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. How awesome would it be if it said, Steph, believe the Lord and God credited to her as righteousness. Not not that she is righteous, not that I am righteous, but I just simply believed the Lord. Do you realize this man I'm talking about this morning, Abraham, is the most famous person in human history. The most famous. The three major religions of the world find their genesis 
in Abraham. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They all trickle back to this man. And yet when you look at his story, he was not all that righteous of a man. I already read the promise to you in Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2, where God said to him, you're going to go and you're going you're to be a father of many nations. But that promise in Genesis 12 was a conditional promise. And one of the conditions that God gave him was you need to leave your people and your father's household. That's the first thing he told him. Now, let me read the very next verse. The first thing that Abraham does after God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. But you got to leave your household and your father's family, which, by the way, he had to leave them because they were a pagan people, not righteous people. Abram wasn't a righteous man when God revealed himself to him. There's no sense in looking in your past to determine your future. God showed up and he said, I'm going to bless you. Obey me. Very next verse. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Now Lot was his nephew. And one of the conditions that God said was don't bring your family with you. You, you gotta, if, if I'm gonna bless you, you gotta get away from those folks. The first thing he did, he took his, he took his nephew with him. And then as we read through his story a little farther, you see that a famine came into the land. And instead of staying in the place where God had said, I'm going to provide for you, Abram got nervous and he went down to Egypt so he could survive the famine. To make matters worse and to complicate his disobedience, it dawns on him that my wife, being as beautiful as she is, might be taken from me and they'll kill me when the Egyptians see her. And so he told his wife to lie and say, you're my sister. And so Pharaoh takes Abram's wife, thinking it's his sister, and brings her into his harem. And then Abram does the same thing a few chapters later with King Abimelech. His wife Sarah was taken. What's my point? Why am I saying all this? I'm not saying this to, to smear the name of Father Abraham. I mean, he's the father of our faith. I'm not saying that to to make him look worse than he really is. My point is that Abraham became the father of our faith because of what happened in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteous. Can I challenge you? Just believe God today. Don't worry about what you know or what you don't know or what has happened or what will happen. Just believe God. God, you know, the biggest problem that God has with believers, believe it or not, is unbelief. Think about that statement for a little while. That's the problem. It's our unwillingness to just take God at his word. Now, I want us to go to Genesis 18 because we're going to look at the promise that God gave him. And we're going to begin to see a portrait take shape this morning. In Genesis 18, God told Abraham and Sarah... That they would have a son. And first, as we read, God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham, he kind of vacillated on the promise. And he thought, well, my, my servant is going to be my heir. And then God came back a second time and he said, no, Abram, you're going to have a son who is your own flesh. But still, not believing the promise fully, he rationalized that since his wife couldn't conceive, he should have a son to her servant, Hagar. And Ishmael was born. And we find our roots of Islam. God comes back a third time now in Genesis 18. 
And he makes it very clear this time. He tells Abram plainly, at this time next year, your wife, Sarah, will give birth to a son. But even in Genesis 18, verse 12, the Bible says that when Sarah overheard the angel of the Lord telling Abraham that she would have a son, the Bible says she laughed. She couldn't believe it. She laughed. Now, this is an incredible story right here in Genesis 18. But what I want you to see today is more than just this story. What I want you to see is whose portrait this story is painting. Keep your place there in Genesis and go with me to Matthew. First book in the New Testament. A new beginning. Matthew chapter 1. This is the part of the Christmas story that most of us skip when we read it. It's the genealogy. It's the part that we go, so and so begat, so and so who begat, so and so. And we struggle for about 16 verses to pronounce names that we would never give our children. But I want you to see something in the genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And on and on it goes. And I won't read all those names to you. But let me tell you, for the next 14 verses, they span 42 generations. In verse 17, skip down to it with me. Verse 17 in Matthew 1 reveals how the birth of of Isaac, Abraham's son, fits into the portrait that is being painted on the canvas of the Old Testament. Matthew 1.17 Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let me tell you about Isaac. Abraham and Sarah's promised child and the picture that his life paints for us today. Isaac, first of all, was a child of promise. I've already mentioned it, but in Genesis 15, 4, God said, I'm going to give you a son of your own flesh and blood who will be your heir. He was a son of promise. But can I tell you, he's not the only son of promise. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is a promise of a yet-born son named Jesus. Isaac's birth was announced by angels. In Genesis 18.10, the Bible says that the angel came to Abraham and he told him that Sarah would have a son one year from the day. But can I tell you this morning that Isaac was not the only birth that was announced by angels. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. 
you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. Not only was Isaac and Jesus' birth both announced in advance, but both of them were named by God before their birth. The Bible says in Genesis 17 and verse 9, that God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. That was the word of God. You must keep this covenant for the generations to come. Not just you and Isaac. This promise that God gave to Abraham when he said to name your son Isaac was a promise that looked through a long lens into the future fulfillment we would find in Jesus. This promise is an everlasting covenant. Forty-two generations later, we see that picture, the picture in the Old Testament as the messenger of the Lord appears And says to Mary, you will bear a son and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's funny that when the angel of the Lord communicated the promised child Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, her response was to laugh. Her response was to say, in in essence, this is impossible. I'm barren. She was 90 years old at the time. This can't happen in the natural And when the angel of the Lord appeared to the young virgin Mary with similar news, she had a similar response. She said, how can this be since I am a virgin? Both pregnancies for Sarah and for Mary were supernatural. They were supernatural births. And the angel's response to both of them is very familiar to Sarah's doubting. The angel of the Lord said in Genesis eighteen fourteen, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And to Mary in Luke 137, the angel simply said, Nothing is impossible with God. Why would God take such time? Two thousand years to make a portrait of the coming king. Why would God take so much time to have such an allegorical story in the history of his chosen people? You know, I was reading about Michelangelo this week. And did you know he worked for over four years straight on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Over four years creating that beautiful fresco. And over 5 million people every year come through craning their necks to get a look at that work of art. As beautiful as it is, let me tell you this morning, it pales in comparison to what we know about the portrait that God was painting through the Old Testament. The Bible says in 1 John 4, in verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So before the word became flesh, God painted a portrait with those words so that when he appears, we would recognize him. Let's take another look at that portrait in the Old Testament. Look in chapter 21 of Genesis. Verse 3 says this, 
Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. Isaac. This is one year after God had said they would have the son. And Sarah laughed in response to it. Now God says, name him Isaac, a name that means laughter. And can I tell you that that's significant? It wasn't God just one-upping her lack of faith. There was a purpose for giving him the name Isaac, because Isaac is a progenitor of the Savior. He's one that we can look at in the Old Testament and see with expectation what the Son of God will look like when he comes on to the scene. And when Jesus came on the scene, the announcement that preceded his birth by the angels to the shepherds in the field was, Behold, I bring you great tidings, good tidings of great joy to all the people. Joy. That's what Jesus' birth brings. Laughter. Speaks of blessing. Speaks of health. Laughter speaks of life. It speaks of well-being. It speaks of good things. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life that you may have it more abundantly. So if Isaac is a portrait of Jesus and his name means laughter, I, I think we could say today that one of the names of Christ is laughter. You know, there's some people and maybe even someone here today. There's some people that hold back on surrendering their whole selves to Jesus because they actually believe that if I start living this Christian life, I'm not going to have any fun anymore. I mean, if I, if I start living for Jesus, I'm not going to be able to have fun anymore. I'm not going to be able to live it up and, and laugh and have a good time anymore. Listen, if that's your worldview, you need to go back and gaze at this portrait again. Because he is laughter. And Jesus came that you may have life to the fullest, more abundantly. I want to take one more look at this portrait in the life of Isaac. So go with me to chapter 22. The Bible reveals to us that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to make that statement because we say it so often in the church. Sometimes we forget that Others don't know that. But Jesus is God's son. The most famous verse in all the Bible about Jesus is John 3.16. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I think that phrase is really interesting when we find it in the context of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Because by this point in the story, Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. But yet when God speaks to him in Genesis 22, in verse 2. Look at what he says. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So here in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham begins to do something unimaginable he begins to prepare the cart he begins to pack for the trip he loads up the wood him and his boy begin a journey with some of their servants and after they've gone a little way and he sees the destination in the distance the bible says in verse 4 of genesis 22 on the third day abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants you stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy 
go over there. And then listen to this statement of faith. He said, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, how could he say that? If God had said, I want you to go to this mountain and I want you to sacrifice your only son for me. How could Abraham, why would Abraham say, we're going to go worship and we're going to come back to you? I mean, what, was he lying to them because he didn't want to answer for what he was about to do? Was he hoping that, that maybe he could just get over the crest of the horizon and, and just pretend that they had made a sacrifice and, and then come back? I don't know. What could he have done? Well, the Bible gives us insight in Hebrews 11. Verse 9 tells us exactly why he could say, we'll go over there and we'll worship and we'll come back. Look at it. It says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And in this manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Are you seeing this portrait? I mean, I don't even have to explain this one to you. It's right there in black ink on white pages. The correlation between Isaac's life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were both resurrected from the dead. One in a manner of speaking, Hebrews eleven nine says, the other in a matter of fact. He's risen. And God took the time 2,000 years before he was even born as a babe in a manger to paint the picture for us clearly. That he's a resurrected savior. Look at verse 6 with me. There in Genesis 22 still. As we read down through this incredible passage. It says Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering. And he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went together. Can you imagine this scene? Here's Abraham the father. He's got the fire. And he's got the knife. And here's his son, Isaac. And he takes up the wood. I don't know, maybe maybe he carried it like this. And he starts marching up a hill to a place where he's going to lay his life down as a sacrifice in full obedience to the will of his father. Isaac had not done anything deserving death. He wasn't going to be punished for something he had done. He was simply obeying the will of his father. And he marched, he carried the wood up the hill to the place where he would lay his life down. And I know in this chapter, Abraham says, me and the boy will go farther. And so maybe in your mind, or maybe it was because something you colored in Sunday school as a kid, but the idea is that we tend to think that Abraham was just a little Boy, but that's not the case. For one, we've already read that he carried the wood. He was old enough to march up the hill himself and carry the wood. We know that Abraham was way over a hundred years old by this point. So I don't know, even if he was a young boy, I don't know that Abraham could have got him to lay on that altar had he not fully submitted himself to the will of his father. But what's interesting is when you read the next chapter, the Bible says that Sarah was 127 when she died. So it's more than likely when you're over 100, you can call your son a boy at any age. It's more likely that Isaac was actually in his 30s. Because Sarah died 37 years after 
he was born. Now, I don't know how old he was exactly, but if I had to guess this morning, I'd put my money on 33 and a half years old. Because that's the exact age that Jesus was when he picked up the wooden cross. And he marched up, by the way, the same mountain range to a hill called Golgotha. And he went there not because he had sinned, not because he deserved death, but he went in full obedience to the will of his Father to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Jesus fulfilled the picture that we see in the Old Testament. Quickly look with me at verse 7 and 8. It says that as the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abram replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was questioning His father's plans. That shouldn't be surprising. Even Jesus questioned his father's plans. The Bible says on the night of his arrest, he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup be taken from me. It was his way of saying, God, if there's a better way that we can save the world, I'm up for that because this plan looks painful. And yet he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And like Jesus, Isaac faithfully followed his father up Mount Moriah. Verse 8 says this. It says, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I don't think there's any way that Abraham could have known the significance of that statement. In verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. For the next 42 generations, for almost 2,000 years, the people of God were asking the same question that Isaac was asking. Where's the lamb? Where's the one that's going to cleanse me of my guilt? Where's the one that's going to right my wrong? Where's my hope? Where's salvation? Where is the lamb? They asked that question until finally one day on the outskirts of Bethany, just beside the Jordan, a prophet of God named John the Baptist stood up and pointed his finger and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed at Jesus. The Lord will provide the lamb. The next couple of verses tell us that Abraham and Isaac, they made their way up to the mountain. They built the altar. They placed the wood on it. And then the Bible says Abraham bound Isaac's hands. Just the same way that Mark 15, 1 says the chief priests and the Sanhedrin bound the hands of Jesus. He bound his hands. Then in that moment, Abraham lifted up a knife. And he prepared to thrust it through the heart of his own son. He was going to kill his son. But that's the moment where the similarities end. The Bible says in the next verse, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord 
called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then the next verse says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. That's the place where the similarities end. Because for Jesus, there was no ram caught in a thicket at the top of the hill. For Jesus, there's no substitute. Jesus gave his life. God the Father did what Abraham only contemplated. He sacrificed his own son, the one that he loves, for the sake of sinners like you and me. Isaac was spared, but the Bible says in Romans 8.32 that God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. It's a powerful picture that's been painted. And as we gaze into the portrait at the life of Isaac, I want you to see Jesus today. I want you to see what he's done for you. One more verse I want to read from this story this morning. Genesis chapter 22. We're down to verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Did you know you can still say that today? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham didn't know when he stood on that mountain and said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That some 2,000 years later, God would fulfill that promise by sacrificing his own son. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let me ask you to just consider, what do you need today? Is it peace? Is it forgiveness? Is it a new start? Is it healing in your body? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. He's made provision for us all. And I want to give you a verse today to stand on. And then we're going to pray. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made. They are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us. To the glory of God. Maybe you're here today and. You just needed to see Jesus. It's easy to forget. That's why God in his love. So painstakingly. Painted beautiful pictures. A portrait of Isaac. So that we could see. Exactly. What God has done. For us. So as we conclude this service today. I'm going to make a simple invitation. 
for some of you to come. Maybe you're here and, and you, you need Jesus in your life. You need the grace and the, the forgiveness and the reconciliation that we celebrated in communion earlier. You need to know what 1 John 1, 9 promises. That if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just and He will forgive my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Maybe today you need healing. Maybe you need a, another touch. Maybe you need a, a fresh start. There's a picture that we've painted in God's Word today. Not for us to sit back and admire to come near to come near to the one who the Bible says came so near to you that he was touched with the feeling of your infirmities that's how close he is he feels your pain so if you're here today we're going to open these altars and I've got some prayer team members that are going to be coming I want to invite you right now would you stand all over this room I'm going to pray a closing prayer. And as I pray that prayer, if you're here today, you say, you know what? I'd love to have somebody pray for me. This is a moment we don't want you to miss. This is a moment that I believe God ordained for you today. This could be the most significant thing that has ever happened in your life. So if you're here today and you say, I I need to come. I want somebody to pray with me. These are here ready to pray for you. While I pray this prayer, I want to invite you to just come. You don't have to, don't wait till I say amen. I won't invite you again today. But while I pray this prayer, God's dealing with your heart. Just begin to move this direction and we'll pray with you. Father God, thank you today for your word. Thank you, God, for the incredible picture that you've painted in the life of Isaac, in the faith and obedience of Abraham and Sarah. God, help us like them to just believe, to believe you. To believe what you said in your word is true. That all of your promises, no matter how many they are, they are yes in Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the manifestation of the portrait. Father, today, give us faith to believe. To believe you. God, I pray today for those that are struggling to trust you. Struggling to hold on to what you said. God, let our faith be renewed. Lord, let our faith be renewed today. Father, we ask you for nothing less than a supernatural intervention. Lord, we know that without you, we can do nothing. We need you, God. So I pray, Lord, even in this moment, as we confess our weakness, as we confess our need, would you show up in a powerful way? God, I pray that throughout this entire Christmas season, that God, we would begin to see portraits of Christ all around us. Point our hearts back to you, Jesus so that we can become so familiar with your presence so aware of your voice that we never miss you that we never miss you when you speak God thank you for this church family 
I pray your blessing on them today. Prosper them and keep them. May they prosper even as their souls prosper. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen today. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.